0: Good morning, everyone. So good to be with you. Always wonderful to be here at TCC. And, uh, you know, it's a great day. Sun is shining. It's March. Summer's on its way. Awesome. And thank you, Val, for reading the scripture. Val was one of the original 10, 11 people who had a vision birthed in her heart as well as we prayed for what God would possibly do with uh, this church. Uh, that was to be called Terwilliger Community Church. And I remember we prayed over in Val and Bob's home every every Monday, every Monday evening, that as God would lead, he would open the doors, and uh, he did. Well, uh, somebody ought to do something. Somebody ought to do something. Anyone here drive a bus? Oh, no bus drivers? No bus drivers? Uh, uh, one day, a bus driver... Was uh, driving along his usual route, and he didn't encounter any problems for the first few stops. It was just some people got on and some people got off, and, uh, everything was going well. But at one stop, he, uh, a, a big hulk of a man got on the bus. He can imagine, if you can imagine, he was six foot, eight inches tall. Built like a wrestler, and his arms hung down to the ground, uh, and he glanced at the driver and said, Big John doesn't pay. (laughs) Then he sat down at the back of the bus. Um, The driver was five foot three inches, thin, very timid, so he didn't argue with Big John, but he wasn't happy about it. The next day the same thing happened. Big John got on again and made a big show of refusing to pay and sat down and Happened the next day, it happened the next day, it happened the next day, and finally the bus driver began to lose sleep over the way Big John was taking advantage of him. Finally he could stand it no longer. He signed up for bodybuilding courses, karate, judo, and a class on finding your self-esteem. By the end of the summer the bus driver had become quite strong and he felt very good about himself. The next Monday Big John entered the bus and Again declared, Big John doesn't pay. Enraged, the driver stood up, glared back at Big John and said, Why not? With a surprised look on his face, Big John replied, Big John has a bus pass. Big John has a bus pass. See, the bus driver thought he had lost control of the situation. And then leading up to our scripture this morning that Val read, the Pharisees knew that they were losing control, losing control of their leadership, losing control of their authority, and no one likes to feel like they're losing control, like something is being taken away from me. So that's a major emphasis in these chapters leading up to the cross, losing control, losing control. They had been used to driving the bus. And they, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, decided who got on the bus. They decided who got off the bus. And they completely rejected Jesus when he tried to get on the bus. Jesus had just arrived in Jerusalem for the final Passover uh you know the story from mark 11 he had gone into the temples uh, into the temple he had turned over the tables of the people who were selling sacrifices there in the temple the jewish leaders were incensed they were trying to figure out a way to get control back because so many were following him they could just pulling his authority away pulling their authority away at the end of chapter 11 here they demand to know what gives him the right to do the things he's doing what gives you the right To get on our bus our bus and he refuses to give them the response that they're looking for so friends that's where we start this morning just in a bit of a context here in understanding Mark chapter 12 verses 1 to 12 it's a fight for control of the bus that's what this passage is all about so buckle up and let's go what we have in front of us this morning is a story What I love about stories is the fact that they they disarm us. They make the point without being too overly direct. And so you can receive it. If somebody hits you in the nose, well, I mean, what what are you going to do? You just kind of get angry. But if somebody circles around and gives you the truth in a rather indirect way, it may get into your heart. In the end, the story is very authoritative and becomes very powerful in the mind of the listener. You just can't get that story out of your mind. It's like when you tell a story, the other person lets their guard down a little bit, and then when they let their guard down, woo, in comes the truth. Sometimes we use a story when we know we have to say something difficult. It's easier to put it in a story form. You know that this was the favorite teaching style of our Lord and we call them parables of course. There's a bit of a debate here whether this is a parable or whether it's an uh, allegory but we won't get into that debate this morning. A parable usually starts off with a picture of something familiar to the listener. Maybe it's a lost coin. Maybe it's a sheep. Uh, Maybe it's a a vineyard. Uh, But But whatever it is, there's an object that becomes the focus of the parable. And then Jesus would take that familiar object and he would give it a 180-degree twist and you would see yourself looking into a mirror. Oh, that's about me. That explains why some of his listeners would bristle and become angry after listening to the parable. For some, the parable became a window. And it helped them to see God and his love. For others, it was a convicting story that left them sputtering for words. So what's the picture Jesus chooses? A man planted a vineyard. He built a wall around it, dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and built a lookout tower. So he chose a vineyard to make his point. Most of the Lord's parables are rather peaceful and pastoral. Uh, The sound of the music gets a little more foreboding in this parable. Uh, Can you give us some foreboding music, Adam? (laughs) Do you know that probably everybody has a cracking point, a breaking point, where by gum, enough is enough? Some people are patient for so long and so long... They can forbear and they can forbear. But everybody has a cracking point. This is a parable that places God at the cracking point. Things are so bad. God is at the breaking point. God is running out of patience. Really? God is running out of patience? If that's so, then what does it look like? So well, this is an R rated parable for violence and a little bloody. What's the picture Jesus chooses? A vineyard. Oh, he has their attention immediately. A vineyard. The vineyard was the national symbol for Israel. Probably close to where Jesus was standing was the beautiful carving of a, of a grapevine sculpted around one of the, the pillars of the temple near the, near the door to the temple. Made of finest gold. Oh, Jesus knew precisely the value of the vineyard to the nation of Israel. And he uses phrases from the beloved fifth chapter of Isaiah. Isaiah says, Now I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. He plowed the land, cleared its stones, and planted it with the best vines. In the middle, he built a watchtower and carved a winepress in the nearby rocks. Then he waited for a harvest of sweet grapes, but the grapes that grew were bitter. And Isaiah goes on and on, and it gets worse as he goes on. I wonder if any of Jesus' listeners had this passage come to mind. And if they did, they were starting to brace themselves, like, what's coming here? Probably by now, every Jew within earshot was leaning forward. What is he going to say about our vineyards? So what's the picture? A vineyard. Who planted the vineyard? A man planted a vineyard. He built a wall around it dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice and built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. Now, there are like layers of a, on an onion that have to be peeled back in understanding this parable. It could be a standalone story of a, of a, of a crime of tenants refusing to pay rent and finally the owner sending people to collect and, and it could stand alone. But it doesn't. It's got a lot more to unwrap. I want you to see how the owner got the vineyard ready. The, the owner gave special attention to starting a vineyard business. He fenced it, built a wall around it for protection. He, he built the wall for uh, protection from wild animals, maybe wild people as well, who, people who would destroy it. He built a lookout tower for being able to see if anybody was coming, especially enemies. He dug a pit which was used to press out the grape juice. And no doubt he planted the the top-of-the-line grapevine. And he waited. And you know, it takes five years for a grapevine to produce good grapes. God had high hopes for his vineyard that he planted years before with Abraham. He's the father of the chosen people. The chosen vineyard. And God planted his vineyard, and he selected Abraham as the first one into the vineyard. And then Moses came to deliver people from Egypt and bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. And finally, through the leadership of Joshua, you know, the people of Israel were planted in the vineyard in Canaan. And God expected great things to come from his spiritual vineyard. God's hand was upon these people. And oh, how he loved them, and oh, how he fought for them. And he brought them into a new land, and he blessed them, and he walked with them, and he anticipated that they would become a people who so radiated him that they would be a light to the Gentiles. And he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers. Now, this is the spiritual leadership of Israel. He put them in charge. He trusted them with the vineyard. But the people who started driving the bus became more interested in their own fame than in the fame of God. It's that simple. Lest we get our fingers wagging at the past and say, oh, selfish rulers of the past, how could you do that? Maybe we ought to realize that we farm a vineyard too. And it's a vineyard that we farm that is much richer than that of Israel. He put you in the vineyard. We have no living prophets anymore like Isaiah or Daniel, but we do have the complete word of God. We do have a risen Christ. We have the precious Holy Spirit who abides in us and leads us and guides us. We have the stories of faith from over 2,000 years of people following Jesus and giving Him their very best. And sometimes their very lives. And look at where God has placed us here at TCC. How are we doing with the vineyard that God has entrusted to us? Are we the kind of people? Are we the kind of leaders that God can trust? Do we have humble hearts? Because that's what He wants. The greater the calling And the bigger the assignment from God, the greater the humility required. It must please the heart of God when he can look at a congregation and they can say to him, whatever you need, Father. Whatever you want, Father. However you guide. We're yours. And we do not want to do it your way, our way, but we want to do it your way. It's not about us. It's not about our fame. Father, it's about your fame. What more could the owner of the vineyard want than something like that? Look how God has blessed our vineyard at TCC. This building is completely debt free, not a penny owing anymore to the bank or to anyone else. That's awesome and, you know, and that's so liberating and that's so freeing and that's great stewardship on the part of the people of this congregation. And this congregation has a heart to pray and has a heart to ask God, how can we serve you? Where are you taking us? And where are you leading us into this great community around us? How can we make a difference for you? Lord, we are not driving the bus. You're driving. You are in charge. We're passengers and we are traveling with you as our leader the key is humility and dependence and saying you are the owner father you own it all we are the tenants only here for such a short time but you choose to use us and you we we are delighted to be used we are stewards of the vineyard you have placed us in we are stewards of our families We're stewards of our children. We're stewards of our neighbors and our friends because God has put us in a place that we can oversee them and come alongside of them. Who planted the vineyard? God planted it in the beginning and God is still the owner of the vineyard and we are his grateful servants. Grateful and generous for the time that he gives us. The Bible says, what does it profit a, a person to gain the whole world? And forfeit his soul. What if you lived your whole life. And you lived it for yourself. But at the end of the day. You never had anything to do with God. You never gave him your best. Oh we get to serve in the vineyard. Until he comes. Let's give our best. Why was the owner so patient? Why was he so patient? At the time of the grape harvest. He sent one of his servants. To collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed the servant, beat him up, sent him back empty-handed. The owner then sent another servant, but they insulted him, beat him over the head. The next servant he sent was killed. Others he sent were either beaten or killed until there was only one left, his son, whom he loved dearly. The owner finally sent him thinking, surely they will respect my son. But the tenant farmers said to one another, here comes the heir to this estate, let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they grabbed him, murdered him, and threw his body out of the vineyard. Why was the owner so patient? When I was 12 years old, uh, my father sold the family farm near Huxley, Alberta, which is, if you don't know that geography, close to Three Hills. And he sold the farm... And he went out looking for another farm to purchase so he could continue farming. He stopped for directions at a little store slash garage near Oles, east of Oles, called the Reed Ranch. My dad was, went into that little garage and he was inquiring of directions to check out a farm that he was thinking he would, would purchase perhaps West of Olds. But the guy who was giving the directions said, are you looking for a farm? He said, I'll sell you mine. Well, my dad looked at him in disbelief and said, are you serious? Yeah, he said, I'm serious. Follow me. So they got in their pickups and dad drove to the, his farm, which was only a mile away. And uh, he looked at the farm And he saw the great potential in it. And it was only 300 yards from the East Olds Baptist Church. That's how I came to be affiliated with a German Baptist church. With a great German name like McDonald. And that's how I came to be a pastor of the North American Baptist Conference for 47 years. It started by attending a church church where the first Sunday it was all in german it came through my dad buying a farm but how cool that my dad bought a farm next door to where we could have the joy of this church family for many years and the land that dad purchased that day was very good land and dad was a dedicated farmer and the farm was blessed and then one day the neighbors were wanting to rent their property And dad rented another half section of land. He didn't own that land, but he rented it. But uh, dad was a reliable renter, and he farmed that land for probably 25 years. The owner takes so much of the profit, the renter takes so much of the profit, and together everybody's happy. When there's a need for an increase in the cost of renting, the owner and the renter, they sit down, they talk about it, they say, here's how things have changed, and here's the new age in which we live, and it was called a cash rent or a cash crop, and I saw how well it worked. The owner and the renter had a great relationship because the renter understood that he was only renting. He didn't own, so he couldn't call the shots. The story in Mark 12 is not a good story of owner and renter relationships. The owner is incredibly patient with the renter who doesn't pay the owner. We sometimes forget we are the renters. We don't own anything. We just manage a part of God's creation. But sometimes we make the same mistake the renters in the parables made. We start imagining that we own the vineyard. Maybe we adopt a spirit of entitlement. This is coming to me. Like I'm in charge here. I'm in charge of my own life. I'll do it my way. Oh no, not even your own life. You're not even the owner of your own life bought with a price. been bought with a price. God has called you to himself. But we may presume that we're in charge. But for the patience of God, we could be gone as quickly as a snap of a finger. A neighbor of ours back on the farm years ago, he said, I'll live my life my own way. And when I come to my deathbed, then I will say to God, forgive me. Jesus, here's my life. Such presumption." I visited him before he died. He was up in his late 80s and he was still holding out. I wonder how our father must feel when we walk into our own house, our own physical house and home and say, ah, this is mine. Look what I've built. I wonder when we go online and check our banking account and we say, ah, it's all mine. No, it's not yours. Every good thing you have is a gift from God. Everything in this world is temporary except the word of God and the souls of people. This parable is about us. God has prepared a vineyard for us to manage. And that great job you have or position or vocation that you have doesn't come by your talent or your good looks. God put you there. God is the creator and he owns it all. He he expects a good return from you. He's not he's not asking for you to give him 90% of what you own or what you what you earn unless you can. He's not even asking for half of it. He says 10% is a good start. But really he wants all of you. He's not primarily interested in your money. He has enough he doesn't need money. He wants you. Why then 10%? Why do we talk about that? And, and and moving up from 10%, he's asking you to first acknowledge his ownership and his lordship over your life. And we do that by saying, Father, all I own is yours. But here's the proof that I'm not just blowing smoke. These are not just words. Well, here are my resources. Here are my resources, Lord. I want to be faithful with what you've given. And so in love, I bless the kingdom with a platform of 10%. And as he blesses, we increase that. You too can bless. And the more you bless, the more you bless God and the kingdom, the more you become, the more you have the joy of being a renter. The joy of being a steward. There is joy in being a renter. It's more blessed to give than to receive. You know who said that. So look at all of these attempts for God to bring some accountability to those who were renting. Oh, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they knew what he was getting at. The owner sent one servant after another for accountability and they got beat up and killed. Oh, they knew exactly where he was, he was coming from. They was, they were, he was referring to the leadership of Israel through the years. Elijah was driven into the wilderness. Zechariah was stoned to death near the altar. Isaiah, according to tradition, was sawn in two. John the Baptist was beheaded. Oh, and don't read Hebrews 11 37 and 38 before bedtime. It's not very pretty. Israel's leaders wanted the vineyard fruits for themselves. God's prophets and his servants were a threat. But instead of turning his back on the world, God continued sending servant after servant after servant through the decades through, through the centuries. Rebuffs, insults, beatings did not stop him. And finally, he sent his son. Charles Spurgeon had a wonderful quote. He said, if you reject him, He answers you with tears. If you wound Him, He bleeds out cleansing. If you kill Him, He died to redeem. If you bury Him, He rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. Why was the owner so patient? Yes, He loved us so much. I was having my quiet time this morning. Lord said, tell the people this morning that he loves them. And I, I, I kind of argued with the Lord just a little bit. Like, they know that. That's, they know that. And it was like he said, I know, but just tell them again. Just tell them again. I love you. Why was the owner so patient? He loved us. Will the owner's patience run out? Why do you suppose the owner of the vineyard, what do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do, Jesus asked. I'll tell you, he will come, he will kill those farmers, he will lease the vineyard to others. Didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it's wonderful to see. The religious leaders wanted to arrest Jesus because they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers, but they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. And you know, if you look back over history, you know a great national judgment came upon Israel under Titus, the Roman emperor, only a few years later. In the vineyard of the church, the leadership eventually began to shift. And from the Jewish leadership, it became Gentile leadership dramatically changing the landscape of the new church. It was a church that was given over to the leadership of the Gentiles. And when we come to communion this morning, we're reminded that the stone that the builders rejected has now become the very cornerstone. God sent His Son. Yes, He was rejected, but He became the cornerstone. They rejected the Son But in fact, the one they killed and nailed to a cross was indeed the Christ, the Messiah. He was the cornerstone. They tried to put him aside and say, oh, who is he? He was the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the key building block. They couldn't see the cornerstone. They set that stone aside, but later they went back to the stone and they saw that it actually did fit. It was the right stone. After all, this was Jesus, the Savior, He was indeed the cornerstone. Oh my, all of those words of Jesus came flooding into the hearts of the Pharisees and the teachers. And they were mad. They would have killed him on the spot if they could have. They were losing control. Well, finally, will the owner's patience run out? In the 19th century, before radio and TV in America, people got their entertainment by listening to uh, public speakers called orators. One of the most infamous was gifted atheist Robert Ingersoll. He traveled all over America giving speeches, and he often concluded his speech with a dramatic challenge. He would shake his fist to heaven, and he would say, God, if there is a God, I dare you to strike me down in the next 10 seconds. And then he would count. One, two, three, four. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And women fainted. And people who loved God rushed for the exits. And they, fi- they, they fully expected God to send a fireball to consume Robert Ingersoll. Of course, nothing happened. Then Ingersoll would finish by saying, Now how can you believe in this God? And when reporters asked Pastor Joseph Parker about Ingersoll's challenge, he laughed and he said, does Mr. Ingersoll presume that he can exhaust God's wonderful patience in just 10 seconds? Ingersoll later died at the age of 65 from heart failure. God was patient with him for many years. And he's patient with us. Christ is the cornerstone. He's the key piece. And he came to this world. And in so doing, he shifted the religious landscape. New ownership, a new beginning. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been right, made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. So we're going to take a piece of bread and a small cup of juice. Together we eat and we drink. Why? Because this God-man, Jesus, is the cornerstone. He is the cornerstone of my life and yours. So we're going to take a moment to express our gratitude for God's lifeline to us. And I'm just going to pray and then we will move forward. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ, the pivotal God-man in history cornerstone, the one who loves us so dearly. We thank you for your love today. We say we love you, Father. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Holy Spirit. We are so grateful for the three in one. And Lord, as we come around the table this morning, oh, that we might just know your heart a little bit better.